production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Thursday, November 17th, and I'm Angela Shute-Woodson, Senior Advisor of Government Affairs and Director of Community Relations at the City of Cleveland. It is my distinct honor to introduce our speaker today, Lieutenant General Russell L. Honore with the United States Army. According to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, there are approximately 19 million veterans in our country in 2020. Veterans bring valuable skills and experiences from their time served to our country's workforce. They become our teachers, healthcare professionals, public service employees, and most notably, our neighbors and community members. Due to increased investment advocacy efforts in 2022, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs reported 11% decline in veterans' homelessness since 2020, the biggest drop in more than five years. Still, more can be done to improve these statistics. And many veterans continue to struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, substance abuse, suicide, and more. So what more can be done for our veterans? And what does the future look like for U.S. Armed Forces? Lieutenant General Russell Honore is a, is a decorated 37-year Army veteran, a global authority on leadership, and an expert on climate change and disaster preparedness. During his military career, he held numerous commands, including the Joint Task Force of Katrina, and more recently, he led the security review of the U.S. Capitol security infrastructure following the attacks on January 6, 2021. Moderating the conversation today is the City of Cleveland's Chief Director of Public Safety, Carrie Howard. Director Howard is a former assist, assistant U.S. United States Attorney to the Northern District of Ohio, also served as the City of Cleveland's Chief Prosecutor. Director Howard is also a major in the United States Air Force. If you have any questions for the Lieutenant General, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your questions at the, at the City Club, and the City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming Lieutenant General Russell L. Honore. Carrie. General Honore, thank you for being here today. And uh, we just uh, celebrated Veterans Day recently uh, and the Marine Corps birthday. Uh, Veterans Day is you really important. You had to important. put that in there. I, I, I had to. I had to. You know, see that? You see, see what I mean? <laughs> Veterans Day. What's the significance of Veterans Day, General? Well, uh, it's a time to thank those who have served. Uh, I, uh, I play games with the media because uh, 
they get the days mixed up. <laughs> uh, many a times when they're reporting mm -hmm. on what is Veterans Day, what's Armed Forces Day, and what's Memorial Day. Ver Veterans Day, uh, Armed Forces Day is close, but Armed Forces Days are for those who are in uniform now. That's right. They currently serve. And Veterans Day is for those who have served. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a day to say thank you. And it's commemoration of the end of uh, World War One, 11th day, 11th hour, and it's always celebrated on the 11th as the primary day, but Congress has extended that, that we got the whole month to play with now because right. it was just hard to get everything in to, for municipalities and people across the country to schedule their parades and what have you, all on one day. Uh, and it's football season, so. <laughs> uh, it's a time for America and people around the world to say thank you. Because there are other countries that share in this tradition like Great Britain. They, uh, they use the uh, Sunday is closest to and they have a royal parade to, but it started at the end of World War I as a way to thank veterans and well, we see how far we've come now in taking care of our veterans that at the end of World War I, the idea of the Veterans Administration was a glimmer in many's eyes because our troops were coming back from World War I right. in the middle of the Depression. And those troops were uh, promised bonuses. Bonuses that they waited years to get, never got. And those veterans uh, took a train from the state of Washington and came across the country, picking up veterans. Made their way to Washington, D.C. and did an encampment on the mall, uh, as we know it, in Washington, D.C. And the president at the time got disgusted with it and said, boot him out. So I said, John McCarthy and the 3rd Regiment I came out and drove those veterans off the mall in Washington, burned their camps down, because the Congress failed to act on their bonus. Some of them were driven down and they went to work for WPA. Some of them ended up in Florida. And in 1935, a hurricane came through and several hundred of them were killed in the hurricane because they weren't evacuated. So when you look around and you hear politicians say, oh, we take care of our veterans, blah, 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 bullshit. <laughs> they do what they want to do, and it's a tradition from World War I forward when they failed to, to give them what was promised. And here we go up to, in the last two years, the fight over the burn bill. Well, we actually knew, and before the burn bill, it was Agent Orange. We actually knew, and the Congress knew. They were briefed, they had the information, but, but they held those benefits back. So it hadn't always been fair, but it's better now than I've seen it in, in, in my lifetime as far as them coming forward, getting the resources from the Congress, and oh, by the way, the burn bill, didn't everybody vote on it? There are a lot of people voting against it. 
But we got it now, same thing with Agent Orange. And the same thing we're going to have with, uh, we face now with taking care of our veterans, our veterans who uh, many of them didn't have legal status in the country. We still got to deal with that. They went off the war, some of them came back injured, some of them came back injured and were deported. So uh, we've come a long way, but there's still things that has to happen in the system. My first introduction to the VA, I was 65, and the leader of the VA had been the chief of staff in the Army, General Shinseki, and he told me, he said, I'd seen him at an opening of a cemetery. He said, Russ, are you using your VA? I said, no. He said, I want you to go to Mar and start sign up for the VA. Did you go? Well, yeah, I did. I had 80% uh, uh, disability that I got within a few months after I retired from the Army. You stay in 37 years, three months, and three days, and most of your stuff is broke. <laughs> oh, it's squeaking. And, yeah. So I go into the VA, and many of you can maybe able to relate to it. The lady behind the desk said, uh, you got your veterans card? I said, no, I've got a retired ID card. I spent 37 years, three months, three days in the Army. She said, well, you ought to have a VA ID card. I said, this is the card I got. It's government card. She said, well, uh, before we can do anything for you, you got to go get your DD-214. I said, I'm not going to get no damn DD-214. I said, I'm already getting a check, lady. I'm disabled. What's a DD-214 for the folks who don't know? It's when you discharge from the Army or any service. It's a status that you served and the status of your, whether you ended in good honorable status. So she said, well, you got to go get that DD-214. I said, I'm not going to get no damn DD-214. I said, y'all gave me the damn DD-214. <laughs> I said, it's in that computer. Then she said, I need you to fill out this financial form. I said, I'm not filling out no damn financial form. She said, well, if you want care here, you got to fill out the financial form. I said, lady, when I signed up for the Army, they said nothing about me knowing how much money I make for you to figure out what kind of health care I'm going to get when I retire. And right. I'm 80% disabled. She said, you're going to be difficult. I said, can't you see I'm a little crazy? <laughs> you damn right I'm going to be difficult. So a supervisor walked by and said, uh, would you come with me, sir? So I went in the back, talked to a guy. Marcus, never forget this. Marcus said, yeah, the only way we can see you about your knee, we have to examine you. You went through that when you went to the VA. We can't see you until we assign a doctor to you. Say, it can be 90 days, General. We can get you to see a doctor to examine you. I said, just to examine me? I said, what the hell happened if I had a heart attack right now? Oh, we just called the, 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 the ambulance have you carted off, they'll take care of you. But right now, I'm standing here, I can't see a doctor. Oh no, we gotta examine you and assign a doctor. 90 days, I say, Marcus, this is not gonna end well. He said, wait a minute. So he ran to the back, came back about five minutes later, said, John, can you be here this afternoon at 
We're going to examine you. <laughs> Not every veteran is treated that way, but that's the way every veteran should be treated. Yeah. You with me down there? Yeah. 90 days is what they told me. Come to find out, the doctor had a couple open spots. How many open spots get missed because they got that 90 days to see uh, to get your first exam? Well, General, let me ask you, what, what made you feel that you needed to push the system so that they would see you right then and there? Well, that's why the chief of the VA wanted people, senior officers, to go to the VA so we could, uh, when you see something broke, we were raised, you don't pass by a mistake, you fix it. Because mm -hmm. if you do, you just set a new standard. So what would a lower ranked, perhaps an enlisted person, how do you think they would have uh, responded in that situation? Yeah, many of them will respond the same way I did. Okay. That if they got status, you know, they came in a car, right. they got a credit card in their pocket, they got a phone, mm -hmm. they would act. But the neediest of us, mm -hmm. those who are walking on the street, who fall in bad times, they go to the front door of the VA, guess what they do? They call the damn security guards over. They escort them out because they don't have their DD-214. <laughs> and we got to constantly fix that. And that's where our auxiliary organizations like uh, American Legion, Foreign Wars, and uh, uh, veterans associations, that you can join, that gives you free advice. Uh, you got to engage. In other words, a veteran, when you transition out of the military, you got to find you a team mm -hmm. of other veterans. And General, we spoke about that earlier today when you and I met. In the military, we're a team. Yeah. There's, there's many of us. Right. Out here, you have that sole veteran who, as you stated in our conversation, who catch the bus, Right, transfer from bus to bus. Right. They have no transportation. Uh, they're maybe being, you know, riding the bus on a gifted bus pass from RTA, and they go down there and they meet this brick wall. Right? What are some of the hurdles that you feel um, those economically deprived veterans receive as they as they try to get? Well, VA I, I was encouraged in, in the clinic I went to in Baton Rouge. They had uh, veterans who were not there for uh, appointments, mm -hmm. but they were there to help veterans who needed help signing up. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of when you have good local clinics and community engagement, because they came every morning, they were loud as hell, they're from out of Vietnam, <laughs> lying like hell, uh, but they were banter with each other, but they were a welcoming sight. Yeah inside that Baton Rouge clinic, and then come along COVID, close it down. And, and they haven't been back yet, but they were, they helped a lot of people get signed up who did not have the documentation, they knew how to go online, they knew how to download information, they knew how to become a surrogate uh, sponsor of that mm -hmm. veteran. And state veterans offices have gotten a lot stronger. Okay. Uh, each state have veteran offices now that are engaged in, in helping veterans. So, so if you haven't gotten into your state uh, VA office, they, they, they are well staffed because they, they got budget come for them. Mm -hmm. 
and, and they can help a veteran go a long way. And some of them have regional offices. Mm -hmm. So, but the Air American Veterans Association and others will, will help the veteran fill out the forms. What can so you know? I, and I'm I'm a veteran, and I've used benefit services mm -hmm. like by DAV, disabled veterans. Oh, that's a great one, right? What can what can local municipalities do? To help uh, to help veterans employed by local government or those who have limited access. Well, we encourage uh, as uh, each mayor to have a veterans uh, resource council, uh, and I think we have a group here, yeah. and that's the group we went drink all that liquor with last night. And got <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> But we did go out and uh, and and uh, abuse a little bit, and uh, that's the kind of groups. Yeah. Uh, every uh, municipality, and county, and major company should have a, a veterans resource group, and they can advise the political leaders, and the corporate leaders, of, uh, and it provides a forum for the veterans to come together and share information on their benefits because things constantly change. That's right. You might have been told three or four years ago and you got a solid no from the VA, but the law changed. Mm -hmm. Because God knows there's enough people working on fixing a lot of the things people got told no over. For a long time, our sailors who were in Vietnam were just ignored. They got zap, zip, zippo. And, and a lot of that has been fixed over time. But it took legislation to fix that. It's not like the people in the VA want to, their job is to tell you no. Mm -hmm. But they have to live by the rules and regulations that are set up by Congress. On the other hand, you kind of want some things to question. Otherwise, uh, every veteran could claim what? 100% disability. That's true. That's true. I was with some guys that when I was out processing from the Army, and uh, they sent us to a clinic in Atlanta uh, to get exams. So the, a couple of guys came together, they were from a little country town, they were carpenters, another guy was an electrician, another guy was a, a police officer. We are all around the same age, and uh, we were going in to do hearing tests. And uh, some of them had already been classified already. But they had gone to Vietnam, been in two and a half years. Go to Vietnam, got trained, went to Vietnam, came back, got out. And spent the years as construction workers. Okay. So they were sharing, they said, make sure when you go in there, don't tell them you ran a, uh, back home. a jackhammer. A jackhammer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell them you shot mortars in Vietnam 30 years ago. Uh, you with me? Yeah. So... They were, they were helping each other get through the process to get benefits, and many of them had the impact of Agent Orange, something that hadn't really been diagnosed. But the system has come around a long way, but it still have a long way to go. But you understand the system is not designed that everybody who went in the Army get 100% disability if it's not service-related. Now, General, we've seen... Uh, I think the average is 22 veterans a day commit, yeah. commit suicide. Right. Right? 
Can you speak to what the VA is doing or what the government is doing to help lower that number? Uh, is it working? Well, there's a lot of outreach. There's a lot of, uh, you can see advertisement on TV now yep. or it pop up on your social media. The problem that people need is not seeing it. Hmm. You know, yeah. it's not reaching them. Our suicide rate is 50% uh, higher than the general public. Why do you think that is? As a population. Uh, I think people fall out of being on a team. Mm. And uh, look, half the veterans killing themselves never been to war. You got to look at the data. Yeah. And... There could be a reason why some of them do it, because they, they feel remorse that, you know, they didn't go, they didn't get the medals, or they came back and their buddy got back. Some of them, half of them killed themselves, never got shot at. Mm -hmm. So we, we got to look at the data. But if I knew the answer to that, uh, I'd probably be preaching to somewhere in Washington. But I hope as we dialogue here, mm -hmm. If some of you got some ideas on what we could do that you share it, now I will get it to the right people in Washington Speak on what, what we could do about this level of uh, suicide that we are faced with our veterans. General, speaking of Washington, we have uh, Congress, both House and the Senate. I uh -huh. think we have um, fewer veterans in, in service in Congress now than, than ever before. Do you think that? There is, a, is there a reason why there's less veterans? Do you think that the folks down there are, are equipped to understand what veterans go through? Yeah, uh, that's been a trend, which is, and it's demographics over years. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in World War II, if you finished high school or you were standing up straight, you got drafted. <laughs> that's right. So uh, they went off to the war, the greatest generation, a lot of them ended up in government. And the same thing, we uh, had a pretty big push in, in the Korean War and Vietnam that seated the, the House and the Senate with a few uh, veterans. Uh, but much of that dried up uh, after Vietnam with veterans uh, coming out of the Cold War and going in and participating. Then we saw, after 9-11, we saw a few of veterans going into the Congress and even made it into the Senate. But uh, going and run for office and being a politician, uh, many of the veterans I talked to, people have been, they wanted me to run for president against uh, Obama. President Obama went around. I don't want to be no damn president. No. <laughs> you know, I, I just spent three years as a, as a three-star general with with, with, with AIDS and guards and people leading you down the road with blue lights on and all kind uh -huh. of crazy stuff. I didn't want to live my life that way. No. After being in the Army 37 years, sleeping out on the damn cots. He might have wanted that, but he ain't never slept <laughs> on the damn cot. In Korea, in 12 degree temperature. I, I wanted to uh, enjoy afterlife uh, that I didn't have anything to do with. Uh, everybody know when you go to the bathroom, even. That's true. So, General, uh, you did, so you, I did not want to get in politics, and a lot of veterans feel the same way. That's not their stick. And gotcha. some of them do, 
And they do well at it. I mean, you can go back and look at Senator McCain. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a Senator Inouaf. I mean, there's a lot of them oh, yeah. that, that serve with distinction in, in the legislature. But it's also proven that, you know, you can be president without being a veteran, whereas we went through a series of uh, presidents that have been veterans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a mixed bag. So you did, so. you did 37 years, General. Three months and three damn days. Three months and three days. <laughs> you, you, have, I, you have young people from ROTC here, and when I go out and I speak to high schools and I encourage young people to look at the military for, for a career, what does the military offer young people today? Well, I wouldn't say a career uh, other than a, a path through life where you right. could go and uh, you can learn skills, you can learn more about yourself, you can learn teamwork, you can learn leadership, uh, you can learn about doing the routine things well, you can learn about hurry up and wait. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, you have that satisfaction of having taken a part of your youth and contributed to something bigger than you. Mm. Because uh, you can see yourself admiring yourself in the mirror, but you'll never see the damn world spanning around with looking at yourself in the mirror. Mm. And... Uh, it's a way to give to your country. Uh, a few weeks ago on the eve of the midterm election, I was asked to speak about that on uh, MSNBC on Stephanie Rule's show. You can go back and look it up. It's on YouTube. And she asked, what's my message to people on the eve of the election? I said, people need to go vote. Because I've been hearing a lot as they go around the country and young people were telling me, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to vote this time because I didn't get what I wanted the last time. Mm. I said, you didn't, huh? I said, you've got an obligation to vote. When you look at the sacrifice your ancestors made for you to have the right to vote, over 1.3 million Americans have died fighting for this country for the right for people to vote, not just us, but for people in other countries for the right to vote. Mm-hmm. You got to do it for your grandma because your great-great-grandma couldn't vote. They had to go in the street and got beaten talking about wanting to vote. You got to go vote because of the generation of your parents, grandparents that lived in the age of Martin Luther King and John Lewis where they got beat for being wanting to register people to vote. So it's not about you not getting it. Oh, by the way, let's roll this back to World War I, where they lined up the young men primarily in the town, and the damn train and the bus showed up, and they put them on the trains and they sent them to World War I. And 30% of them died before they got to the war from the influenza. That's not in your history book. We've never talked about that. The number of them died going to World War I and died from the flu, the influenza, the first big pandemic. 30 years after World War I, 
Your ancestors stood in town and they called their names out and they got on the damn bus and they went to the recruiting station and they were shipped off to World War II. Well, on D-Day, on one battle, we lost 30,000 casualties. Many of them had signed up and lied on the age. They were 17 and 16-year-olds, never coming home to shake their mama or touch their mama's head or see a ch an unborn child. That's who you go and vote for. I really don't give a shit about what your opinion is, but you owe it to them to go vote. You look at the people in Ukraine right now, they're fighting for their freedom. They've lost their homes, they've lost family, and all they want is freedom. Your freedom is at the ballot box. I don't care who you vote for, but don't tell me you didn't get what you want or you don't like what they're doing. There's no bus waiting to you take you off the war to secure our freedom. It's at the ballot box. I don't care where you vote or who you vote for, but you don't have the option to say, well, I didn't get what I wanted. Mm. You got an obligation to those who have given you the right to say, do what you want. Go where you want. Do what you want. Express yourselves with the First Amendment. But you got an obligation to those who came before you who gave their lives and spent time in jail and were ridiculed and abused for this right to vote. So go out and vote. Because we're not asking you to go off the war. We got a volunteer army. We're not asking you like the people in Ukraine who's given everything for their freedom. Mm -hmm. All we want you to do is to get off your ass and go vote. Go vote. Excuse my French. <laughs> French my ass. No, I meant to say that. So, General young Al people, engage. Vote. And we need to encourage them to be engaged in the government. General, I have one last question before we, before we shift a question and answer from the audience. Is talk to, I, I want to go back to young people. Talk to young people about what they can bring back to the communities that they love. Because a lot of them don't want to leave home. But like you said, you, doesn't, you don't have to make a career. Right. You can come in, go back out. What can they bring back to their communities to improve their communities? Yeah, well, young people, look, this is generational. When I was your age, old farts like me were yelling at you. That's our job. You with me? That's the cycle of life. Because we, when I was growing up, uh, look at you with your hair. You got your hair all over your head. <laughs> you ain't wearing no shoes. You can't come to my store. You ain't wearing no, you know, you're out there smoking that dope. You know, that's the way the old people used to yell at us. Now we yell at you about wanting your $6 Starbucks. <laughs> that you order online and it's ready for you when you get there. They want it now. <laughs> or you're communicating in some offline chat. Or you can sit down and play a game for eight hours. We don't quite understand it. All we want you to do is as the time come up to secure America, every generation has a war to fight. You go back to the Revolution War for forward. Every generation has a war to fight to save this country. Your job will be to help save Mother Earth. Mm. I don't think we will need Generate Z to go do a D-Day invasion. 
or to do like this gentleman did in the Korean War. He's 94 years old yeah. and attacked. So we're not asking them to do that. What we're asking them to do is the boomers didn't leave this. The, gen, the, the, the greatest generation in the boomers left a lot of work for you to do. Mm -hmm. And your job is how you going to fix and save Mother Earth. How are we going to save Mother Earth? One of the most reviled presidents we had created the EPA, a guy named Nixon. But he created the PPA because this damn river out here called fire. <laughs> and all the business people say, well, this is good for jobs, man. We got some jobs in Cleveland. Come on out of Cleveland. <laughs> Don't worry about it. That stuff running in the water. You know, uh, the solution to pollution is dilution. Bullshit, the river called fire. <laughs> We ought to look at that. We need to look how much that stuff going in there. And it's a constant fight. So for your generation, it's not a Vietnam, it's not Korea War, it's not uh, 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 World War III. It's how do we use your imagination and your zest for technology that we can transition to of sources of energy that prevents the global warming that comes from the current source of energies that we're using. I was at Georgia Tech and you can see this piece on YouTube and I was talking to a bunch of young engineers <coughs> and I said, uh, imagine one of y'all building a box that's about the size of a briefcase that you could buy online or <coughs> a drone would bring it to your house. Excuse me. All them cigars they gave me last night. <laughs> <laughs> and you take this box, because we live in the South, we lose power a lot because of hurricanes and stuff. And you take the box and you roll it in the closet and mm -hmm. you plug it in. And if the electricity goes out, the box, regardless of what's in it, will run the house for a month. Mm -hmm. So look, the little Georgia Tech engineers look at each other, plug it in the wall. So one of them put his hand up and said, Gerald, that ain't gonna work. You can't plug something in the wall and expect it to run the house if the electricity go out. I said, oh yes you can. I said, you little piece of if you figure this out, son, you'll be Bill Gates rich. <laughs> but let me tell you something. When you figure it out and you solve that problem for people up north, when the blizzards come through, the box runs the house, mm -hmm. guess what? You're going to solve a problem for the world. Half of Africa don't have electricity. Think about that. Of the 8 billion people in the world today, 
nearly 4 billion don't have electricity as we know it. And this is the 21st damn century. Think about when they have power, they will become what? Consumers. They're going to want an iPhone. They're going to want a refrigerator. Right? They're going to be able to have clean water, which is one of the biggest killers of the people in the world is dirty water. So it's not a faction that whether you can do it now because we've got to start thinking this young generation on how we do the impossible. Because the future will be based on us doing the impossible. Things that we cannot do now. Doing the impossible. So the future is based on us doing the impossible. How can we retrofit all these old cars we got? How can we retrofit all the buses we have without them being a part of, of pollution? That's right. And that is the challenge to this young generation is assume and take on the impossible. That's where the opportunities are. Take on the impossible. Again, you solve a problem for us that has a global impact on people around the world. And we're already at 8 billion people. And we're going to 10 billion by 2050 with less water, less land, and less food. And General, so y'all got to figure that out. And I think we have some questions, General. I'm trying to sneak in there cautiously because that, that is amazing. A round of applause for Lieutenant General. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everybody. City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question for our speaker, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our City Club staff will try our best to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please? Yes, could you please talk about the problems that young immigrants uh, who have served in our armed forces are currently having obtaining the citizenship that is, I believe, rightfully theirs. I'd like some help with that. Tell us what the problem is. Oh, there's been a lot of snags. No, tell us, tell us, tell us, the, tell us what the problem is. You know. Government bureaucracy, in a nutshell. Are you working with any now that are trying to apply? Well, I work for an immigration law office. I don't know if we have any specific cases like that, but I've heard about them. Yeah, anybody in the room has experience it with helping uh, immigrants, uh, non-citizens, how they get signed up. Yes, sir, why don't you share with us? It takes a while, sir. I was, uh, I'm working with a young Marine who did two tours in Iraq, but he's from Trinidad. Wow. And upon discharge, if you follow the protocols as we understood them, he should have been granted U.S. citizenship. He wasn't. We're now, I'm working with a local congressional staff who's been great, the State Department. I think we have one more form to go through, but it's been a year-long process. Burden of proof fell to him to get birth certificates for his parents from Trinidad. Proof of all of his Marine Corps service records. His, his favorite DD-214. <laughs> that damn DD-214, boy. But, uh, Oh, okay, sorry. For those of you at home, let's try this again. Okay. <laughs> but I've been, like I said, I've been working with a young United States Marine, two tours, Iraq. Uh, he has PTSD issues too. 
Uh, the VA got it connected to us through our organization, the Northeast Ohio Foundation for Patriotism, and I've been working with him for a year and a half with the local congressional staff. We're going to get it done, but as the gentleman from the, uh, the law firm noted, it is bureaucratic beyond belief. I mean, this man should have gotten it upon discharge from the Corps. You served, here's the, you're, you're a U.S. citizen, and it didn't happen. We're still trying to figure out why that didn't happen, but it's a long process, sir. Yeah, I think a path forward is, uh, you mentioned congressman or congress uh, lady, whoever it is that represents you. They're a path to help, and senators. So if you know someone in that loop, uh, have them go see uh, the local congressional office. If the congressman don't want to go see the senator, and, and they've been able to break a lot of these cases loose. The ones I know that have worked, they've go, gone through members of the Congress. I have a question for you. Uh, this is a text question that came in. Um, just this week, um, Poland was bombed. We later found out it was a friendly fire, but there was a moment where we were nervous we might be entering a war. Is the U.S. Armed Forces ready if we were to go to war? Uh, we're talking about a situation in Poland yeah. where uh, the initial report was it, it could have been uh, a Russian rocket intentional or uh, what do you might, accident or whatever you might say, or aberrant round. Yeah, uh, and your question is, from the, uh, from the uh, person is, are we ready for war? Yes. I think physically our army is ready, but I don't think the country is mentally ready. Because while Ukrainians have been setting back, getting their ass kicked, we trying to buy uh, concert tickets. And we're pissed off because we can't get cheap gas. And we're pissed off because uh, uh, there ain't enough baby Similac around. You with me? And here these people on the frontier of freedom uh, fighting with what they have and the U.S. has given them a lot of support. The U.S. has come along with NATO. Uh, but to answer the other part of that question you didn't ask, I think we started the first 100 days uh, not equipping Ukraine to win, but equipping them not to lose, which is totally different. And the Ukraine has outperformed with what we gave them. And they were very adaptive warriors. And they've done significant, and you come to find out the Russians were a piece of shit. We spent a lot of time. How many of these old guys in here spent getting ready to trade for the Russia? The Spetsnaz's coming, the Spetsnaz's coming. And they're going to jump in here, and he's going to jump over that. He, he'll tell you how, how long we spent time worried about the Russian army. And in 72 hours, the Ukrainians wiped them out, a whole regiment of them because we have built them up to be 10 foot tall. Come to find out, they don't eat well, they don't live good, and they're treated bad. And the equipment is shit. You know, the tanks. And, and they haven't seen an M1 yet, those tanks. And we destroyed them all in Iraq. But that being said, I think our military is ready, but the country ain't ready. 
Our country has not been postured because we kept on from day one. We want this to be a limited engagement between Ukraine and Russia. And NATO, no action, talk only. No action, talk only, NATO. <laughs> is attending cocktail parties and queen birthdays. Uh, in their normal way, and that's okay. It would be awkward if NATO was aggressive because we don't need another world war. But you can't allow the bully. Everybody in here have grown up and your aunt, uncle, or your teacher grows. Sometimes you got to stand up to the bully. You with me? And a day ago, when that round happened, I went straight to Article Five. I said, "Ramp it up, clear the airspace in Ukraine. If it flies, it dies over Ukraine. Put in the ATACMs where they can shoot in deep into Russia, uh, and they give them the missiles to kill the Russian." Uh, Oh, broke ships out in the uh, in the in the uh, in the bay. Let's let's start ex executing the target list. We got a target list for this. That I can't say too much about, but I've said enough. That we know where all this stuff is, and, and this would be an air and missile war initially, mm -hmm. because the Russian army is doo doo. <laughs> I mean. They couldn't beat little Ukraine, and they were talking about taking on all of NATO. So, uh, again, I think our army is ready. The nation's not. And we just come out of the political season. Nobody wanted to talk about that, and we're going to go right back into the political season. But the country isn't ready, and sure in the hell NATO ain't ready. As far as the nations are ready to go to war. So, and that could be a good thing. Uh, but there's enough capacity on the ground if the Russians were to do something like drop a chemical weapon or uh, attack into NATO country, we could start executing Article 5. There'd be shit falling out the sky they hadn't seen before. Thank Excuse you. Excuse my language, but I feel pretty strong about that. <laughs> I would like to say thank you, General, for all that you've given us. I would like to say um, everything that you touched on, veterans, I am a veteran, thank you, from the uh, for United States Air Force. And yes, we, um, our suicide rate is really high because when we went into the service, we were looking to become a part of something. And when we left the service, we no longer had a team. That is nationally known. So the Mission Continues is a national organization that we actually get veterans together um, to help, to guide, to involve them, and to give them peer support. I am the new Cleveland platoon leader for Cleveland, and what right. we do is get veterans together. Um, you can look us up at missioncontinues.org, and we're nationally known to provide service to communities and also to give us an opportunity to be a part of a team again so that we can get the support that we need. So that's missioncontinues.org. You put in your uh, zip code, and it will direct you to the Cleveland platoon so that we can go out in the community and show what the veterans can do. Thank you.
You know, they, they, they've done a lot. Like you, a veteran can now pass the education benefits on to family members. I mean, who would have thought they would have, Congress would have been so gracious? Problem is, many of them don't use it because they don't know about it or they've never been briefed on how you do it. Obviously, you got to add a DD-214. <laughs> but you can pass your, your education benefits on to your kids or family. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Lee Collins. I am a junior at Cleveland Central Catholic High School. My, my question to you is, okay, let's go back towards your younger days. You know when you're young, you have these dreams and ambitions as you get older on what do you want to do or plan on doing in your life. Has being a veteran something that you've always wanted to do or was that just the plan that God has given you for you to follow that path that he has given you? I didn't get the last part. Did you always want to be a service member? Or oh, hell no, I wanted to be a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> but that shit didn't work out. <laughs> and uh, I ended up, we had the draft. I was in college, seriously, and I was in ROTC. And I wanted to come in the Army as a lieutenant. So I was allowed to finish. I went to Fort Benning, went to airborne school, uh, went through infantry training, did all my running and rucking and all that crazy stuff and said, uh, we don't need you in Vietnam now. It was 1970, around 72. And, uh, but we're sending you to Fort Ord. So that was a big letdown because a lot of my peers who had come in six months earlier, I had to wait for so many months to go to Fort Benning. They made it to Vietnam, and he was like, damn, going through my career with my peers, people who I got education with, and uh, had been to Vietnam, and, and I didn't go. So I tried to work as hard as I could to make up for that, and I would not anybody outwork me. I don't care if they had been to combat or not. And uh, I survived that, and then, uh, then Desert Storm, I was a battalion commander of an infantry battalion, 1,200 troops. And uh, that's where I got my time with uh, Iraqi missiles being shot at us. 18 of them shot at my battalion at the Port of Damal. So it's, it's sacrifice. And you do the best you can. Uh, but one of the most disappointing hours after sitting there at the Port of Damal and talking to General Powell, who had just came over. And he told my brigade commander, said, be ready tonight. Be ready tonight. So I go back and set my Humvee and say, what the shit you mean, be ready tonight? <laughs> and just about midnight, the shit went down. And we knew what he meant then because Missiles started going off, those tornadoes going off, and those longbows started hitting those Iraqi targets, and those Scud missiles started coming in. It was a rocky night. I said, man, this is, this is living hell. This is what I read about from World War I and World War II, incoming rockets and artillery. It was a living hell. But back to the young man, I don't know if I've answered your question adequately, but I can say this. Uh, 
There's two ways to look at life. You can either be an observer or you can be a player. You can be in the ring and fighting for freedom or you can be a cheerleader for freedom. Both of them are very damn important. Just figure out what role you want to play because somebody's got to be in the ring. When, when bad and evil strike, somebody got to get in the ring. And you can be that person or you can be the cheerleader for that person. There's roles for all of us to play. Hi, uh, my name's Tim Hauser. I'm also a Gulf War veteran. Matter of fact, the night they told you to be ready for at midnight started my birthday. Wow. So the war started on my birthday. Um, I'm also an advocate with Burn Pits 360. We advocated for the Burn Pit Bill and, you know, going back and forth to Washington, D.C. But recently there's been a lot of research coming out about us veterans from Gulf War who were affected by sarin gas. Um, I just want to get your opinion on that, and do you think if the Iraqis did use sarin gas on us, do you think that warrants the awarding of Purple Hearts? Uh, I would say that uh, sarin gas is a very dangerous gas. It's, it's hard to control. It's very deadly. To deliver it is hard. So normally it's a fixed station and you blow the shit up. Right, it's not like you put it in a mortar and say, I'm gonna shoot some sarin gas over there at the city club and make them run out. No, it don't work that way. It's, uh, so I would say it was a, 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 could have been a truckload of, a pallet of, or a container of that could have taken an incoming tank or armor fire or artillery fire and exposed it, would be the most likely scenario. And then there are ammunition dumps where that stuff was stored. And I think that would be the most probable scenario because sarin gas, like if you were to use some of the other uh, known uh, chemical, if you use it in here, 40% casualty. Sarin gas, you use that stuff in here, they'd be ordering a stiff box for all of us. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of gas that if you get a little whiff, you get a little sick. If you get a little whiff of this shit, it kill you. You know, like, I'm going to take a little sip of this. I'm not going to take a full swallow. Uh-uh. But it's a case to be made until it's proved different. You need to continue to do what you're doing because, but there's nothing proving that a small dose of serin would not kill you, you know, for exposure. But that's the case we've got to go make before Congress. And I'm looking back at my old vets back there who know about this stuff too. We're gonna to have to do a full investigation. And you know it took how many years now to get in Burn Pit? 30 years, there's a storm's over with. Yeah. And we're still fooling with it. And just got it done and didn't get a unanimous vote in Congress. So we're gonna to have to do some more work on that. As far as the Purple Heart, that's a tough one. Uh, I've been to soldiers' funerals who got killed in combat from driving back in a tank up, fell in a hole after being shot at, and the Army didn't give them the Purple Heart. So uh, that's a tough one. But I don't know if we'll get there on the Purple Heart for those that were exposed. But it's progress being made all the time.
It's been fun being here with you. That lady standing there. Some of you might say, well, uh, why, why aren't you doing something else? Well, you need people being on this. You need, you need agitators like me. I mean, Dr. King was not a politician, and he could have been one. Gandhi was not a politician. I don't put myself in that league, but I aspire to be a voice for the people because once you get in that black car, you got all that security around you, uh, you're on a path to try to do something, and that can all that can be good. But I found after 37 years, three months, and I have to make a contribution for being where I am, and I'm pleased with that. I've written three books. Uh, I got two up here today: Leadership in a New Normal. It deals with how we're going to go from seven to ten billion people, and the challenges that we face and solutions. And the other one is don't get stuck on stupid. We can't keep doing the same thing over expecting a different result in education, health care, take care of our veterans, and the climate. We got to change. God bless you. you good? Put on. Thank you very much. Before we conclude, I wanted to give you our challenge coin from the Cleveland Department of Public Safety, General. Thank you for everything you've done for the country. Bless you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lieutenant General Russell Honoré, for joining us at the City Club today. Today's forum is in partnership with the City of Cleveland as part of their week-long celebrations for Veterans Day. Thank you to Mayor Justin Bibb, Director Woodson, Anthony Brown, Matthew Eck, and the entire Veteran Affairs Committee for their partnership for today's forum. We are honored to be part of the events, and thank you to all those who have served bravely for our country. We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the Cleveland Cavaliers, Cleveland Central Catholic High School, John F. Kennedy High School's Junior ROTC, the Northeast Ohio Foundation for Patriotism, and the ROTC. Thank you for being with us today. Next up at the City Club, tomorrow, Friday, November 18th, we will welcome Professor Kristen Henning of Georgetown Law. She will be discussing her new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. You can learn more about this forum and others on our website, cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to the Lieutenant General, Director Howard, and thank you members and friends of the City Club. My name is Cynthia Connolly, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.